Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be yet another solved case for my Curious Case series, a case from Texas, the United States. Before we... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline delve into this video though, I'd just like to take a moment to direct your attention to the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm sure you're all very much aware of the current situation going on in the world and I'm sure a lot of you have come to this video as a form of escapism. I've left links in the description which contain details with what you can do to help, from petitions to donations to just educating yourself on the matter. Please do not comment on this video with your opinions and stances on the movements and focus your comments on the case discussed in today's episode instead. This video is about the case of Geraldine Davidson and not the Black Lives Matter movement, and I ask that you remain respectful when discussing it down below. If you have a case that you want me to cover on this channel, then head over to requestacase.com and submit the case information there. I check the submissions constantly, so make sure you submit as much information as possible when sending a case my way. If you are not already following me on Twitter and Instagram, then make sure you are. My handles on both platforms is at it's Joshua Miles. I also have to briefly say that a lot of information in today's case was very difficult to find on the internet, so I've used the Wicked Attraction See No Evil episode on this case as one of my primary sources of information. I've left a link to the episode in the sources, which you can find, as always, in my description box down below. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Wednesday the 26th of January in the year 2000, 84-year-old Geraldine Davidson arrived at her home in Palestine, Texas, the United States. She walked into the house where she lived alone and noticed that her drawers had been rummaged through and her stuff was thrown about the house. It immediately occurs to Geraldine that her home had been broken into and that she had been robbed. She'd been broken into actually twice in the past couple of weeks and she knew the signs that she had to account for, but just as she was about to call for the police, a knife appeared around her throat. The following day, a passing motorist would contact the police after seeing what appeared to be a body in a nearby river's shallow waters. The body would be positively identified to be that of 84-year-old Geraldine Davidson. But who had done this to Geraldine 
and why. Geraldine Iris Wright Davidson, known as Jerry to her friends and family, was born on the 14th of June 1915 in Kansas City, Missouri, to parents Harvey and Ellen Kellogg Wright. After finishing her education, she went on to study to become a history and then a music teacher. She worked at the local high school in Palestine for 20 years up until her retirement. Geraldine had fallen in love and married a man called Clyde Davidson, and together they had three children. Sadly, in 1985, Clyde passed away, leaving Geraldine with their three adult children in her retirement. During her retirement, she became the organist at her local church and taught the younger generations how to play the piano. On the evening of Wednesday the 26th of January in the year 2000, Geraldine was due to attend a choir practice at her local church, as she did most Wednesdays. But when she didn't show up to the practice, her friends immediately began to worry. It was never like Geraldine to simply miss a choir practice. She was an avid member of the choir and would have given plenty of notice if there was anything the matter. They decided to try and contact Geraldine's three children, who as I say were all adults and had their own families, and they all mostly lived an hour or two away from Geraldine's home. One of her sons suggested that she might have gone to a nearby town to go shopping, which is something that she actually did quite frequently, and she might have lost track of time or gotten stuck in traffic on the way home. Now, according to some sources, Geraldine did have a cell phone, but I don't believe that she she uh, frequently remembered to take it with her wherever she went. Some other sources say that she didn't carry a mobile phone with her. Uh, after all, it was the year 2000s and Geraldine was 84 years of age. So if she had become stuck in traffic, then she would have had no way to inform anyone, um, regardless of whether she had her cell phone or whether she didn't have a cell phone. Um, another theory that I read that um, circulated was that her phone might have run out of power. Nonetheless, Geraldine's friends, along with her three children, collectively decided to contact the local police station and ask them to carry out a welfare check just to make sure everything was okay. Perhaps Geraldine had taken a fall at home or fallen ill or something like that. The local police arrived at Geraldine's home at around 11pm on that Wednesday and peered through the front windows of the house. They couldn't see anybody inside. All of the lights were switched off and the front door was locked. When they knocked on the front door, nobody was answering it. They couldn't hear anybody shouting from inside the house. And determined to find out more, one of the police officers decided to go to the rear of the house, where they discovered that the back door was in fact unlocked. The police officer proceeded to slowly enter the property and announced that he was entering the 84-year-old's home out loud. But when he briefly looked around, he saw that the house was in impeccable condition. Nothing seemed to be out of place, nothing seemed to have been ransacked, everything was clean and in order, though he didn't venture more than a few footsteps into the home. Suspecting that perhaps the theory that Geraldine had gone shopping and gotten lost or stuck in traffic on the way home to be true, the officers decided to leave the property. They noted as 
as they were leaving that Geraldine's grey Buick wasn't parked on the driveway, which further added to the theory that she had driven somewhere and perhaps gotten lost. The police decided to issue a notice to all the local patrol units in the area to be on the lookout for a grey Buick vehicle, though just a handful of minutes after leaving Geraldine's home, the officers that had responded to the welfare check passed a vehicle which matched the description of the car they were looking for. They immediately decided to turn around and pull over the vehicle, speculating that it could be likely to have been Geraldine coming home and they wanted to ensure that she was okay. However, when the police pulled over the grey Buick, Geraldine wasn't sat behind the wheel. Instead, there was a man behind the wheel with four passengers in the vehicle. When the officer asked to see the driver's license, he said that he didn't have his license with him. Then, when he was asked whether he had the vehicle registration with him, he also responded by saying that he didn't have that either. The officers, understandably growing suspicious, then began to ask the driver and the passengers who exactly the vehicle belonged to. But nobody inside of the car could give an answer to the officers' questioning, so they decided to run the car's plates through their database to see if they could determine whether it was perhaps a family member's or a stolen vehicle or their biggest fear, whether it was in fact Geraldine's. A few minutes passed before the results came back from the plate check, and these results confirmed the officer's biggest fears. The vehicle with five individuals inside belonged to the now-missing 84-year-old Geraldine Davidson. But where was Geraldine, and how did these people get her car? The police immediately took the five people in Geraldine's car to the police station to undergo questioning. Investigators rushed back to Geraldine's home to conduct a more extensive search. And on this second extensive search of the house, they discovered that a kitchen window had been broken from the outside in, with glass fragments scattered across the kitchen floor. Further to the smashed window, they found that cabinets and drawers across the house had been fully opened, and it seemed as if somebody had gone through them. Upstairs, it was an absolute mess. It was clear that somebody had broken into the house and burglarised it. How the officers responding to the welfare check who had entered the premises before hadn't seen the smashed window or ransacked house is honestly quite shocking to me. Alarm bells immediately began going off for the investigators with the question of where exactly Geraldine was ringing in their ears. When the police searched Geraldine's car, which they had seized by this point, they discovered a roll of duct tape. The investigation quickly morphed from a welfare check into a kidnapping case. When the five people in Geraldine's car were questioned by the police, they told them that they had actually rented the car from a different person in exchange for drugs. And after a degree of persistence from the authorities, they managed to extract the name of the person they had rented the car from. 
Danielle Simpson. Danielle Nathaniel Simpson was born on the 26th of October 1979 in Palestine, Texas. Now, not all too much is known about Danielle's upbringing, but what we do know is that he worked as a machinist and he had actually been on the police radar before this case. He was known to the police for his involvement in the local drug trade. Danielle had actually been involved in a particularly violent domestic abuse case against his girlfriend at the time, where as his girlfriend was leaving the house following an argument, he took a gun and fired it at the door. It's important to note that the girlfriend at the time decided to not press charges against Danielle for this. After his name had been given to the authorities, the search was on to track him down and question him in connection with this case. Around two hours after the police had discovered Geraldine's ransacked house, they pulled up to the last known address of Danielle. The address was actually the home of Danielle's mother, and as they spoke with her asking where exactly Danielle was, she pointed him out as he was climbing out of the window behind them. The police then obviously rushed to apprehend Danielle, though he managed to evade the police and fled into the streets. Police in the local area were immediately notified of Danielle's description, and the search for him began but their search efforts were fruitless. Sadly, the following day on Thursday the 27th of January in the year 2000, a motorist traveling down Texas Highway 79 between Palestine and Jacksonville spotted a body floating in the shallow waters of the river as he crossed the bridge. The motorist immediately contacted the authorities who recovered the body through Geraldine's children the body was positively identified to be that of 84-year-old Geraldine Davidson. Geraldine had been the teacher of numerous police officers who worked at the local police station, and the discovery shocked the entire community. The search efforts for Danielle intensified as a result of this discovery. The following day, the authorities brought in Danielle's wife for questioning. Danielle and his wife had actually gotten married at a young age, and that was allegedly so that his wife could have charges against her dropped. They'd been in a relationship together for years and had even run off with one another. At the time of this case, Danielle was 20 years old and his wife was 16. It's important to note that Danielle's wife was the same person who he had shot at during the aforementioned violent domestic abuse. And when Danielle's wife was brought in for questioning, she revealed the truth of what happened that fateful day. Here is what she said. That morning, she had overheard Danielle discussing plans to break into a house with his cousin, who was 13 years old. This wasn't their first time breaking into this house, though. They had actually broken into the house twice previously. Danielle, his cousin, and Danielle's wife then made their way over to Geraldine's house, which was just a few blocks away, in the early evening of the 26th of January. They knocked on the front door and peered through the windows and determined that nobody was home. Danielle then went to Geraldine's garage, which was unlocked, retrieved a hammer and a pick, and proceeded to walk round to the back of the house and smashed a window. 
Danielle's wife then entered through the smashed window and unlocked the back door to the house. All three of them then began to go through the house to find anything of value that they could steal, and in particularly, jewellery. Danielle's wife located an expensive looking ring in Geraldine's jewellery box, along with money stashed away in a drawer. Danielle also discovered an expensive looking watch and pocketed it, though about 50 minutes after they had entered the home, Geraldine returned home. It was as Geraldine was walking into the kitchen that Danielle snuck up from behind with a knife, grabbed the 84-year-old and held the knife to her neck. He demanded that Geraldine gave him her money, and so she pulled all the cash she had in her purse out and handed it over to Danielle. Danielle then instructed his wife and 13-year-old cousin to restrain the 84-year-old widowed mother of three while he went and fetched some duct tape and a pillowcase. Upon his return, he bound her hands together with the duct tape and further sealed her mouth shut with the tape. He then demanded that his wife tape Geraldine's legs together before forcing the pillowcase over her head. Danielle then picked up Geraldine, threw her over his shoulder, and carried her outside before throwing her into the trunk of her own vehicle, the Grey Buick. Following forcing Geraldine bound with duct tape into the vehicle, Danielle climbed into the driver's seat, with his wife and cousin getting into the passenger seats. The three then decided to drive to a friend's house to purchase drugs. They actually drove to multiple different houses in their search for drugs, and after unsuccessfully trying to buy crack cocaine, they bought some marijuana. It's important to note that throughout this entire affair, Danielle and his wife were acting joyously and as if they hadn't just kidnapped an elderly woman and stuffed her into the trunk of the car. After buying the drugs, they decided to drive the 10 or so miles from Palestine to the nearby town of Grapeland, where Danielle's aunt lived with another one of Danielle's cousins. Crazily, when they arrived, Danielle brought this cousin to the rear of the vehicle, popped the trunk open, and showed off that he had kidnapped Geraldine. Geraldine, undoubtedly terrified for her life and in a state of panic, and who needed regular medication, asked Danielle politely whether he had her medication. Danielle responded by shouting at her to shut up before slamming the trunk closed. After they left his aunt's house, they continued the parade of showing off what they had done. They drove around in Geraldine's car and visited an estimated 8 to 10 different friends to tell them what they had done, even on some occasions opening the trunk of the car to display their kidnapping trophy. It's important to note that at no point did any of these individuals that had been informed and shown what Daniel had done contacted the authorities, anonymously or otherwise. It is also further important to note that some sources state a mentality in the community that snitches get stitches, and that it was very likely that all these people were fearful of Danielle and what he would do if they did contact the authorities. Some other sources mention that a lack of trust in the authorities 
also played a role in this. After finishing his parade of Geraldine, Danielle picked up his 15-year-old brother, and when he revealed to his brother what he had done, his 15-year-old brother suggested that they should kill her. And so the group drove to the end of a dead-end road, violently threw Geraldine from the trunk of the car to the ground, and together, Danielle and his brother proceeded to retape her arms and legs, but this time a lot tighter. Though they decided then that they were too hungry to do anything at that time, so threw her back into the trunk of the car and drove to their favorite restaurant to buy hamburgers and french fries. The entire time time they were in the restaurant, Geraldine, alone and afraid, remained locked in the trunk of her own car in the car park. After finishing their meal, they decided it was finally time to get rid of Geraldine. They drove to the Niches River, Neches River, I'm not entirely sure it's pronounced, and reversed the car up to the riverside so they could easily throw Geraldine in. But they didn't intend on just throwing her in the water. Danielle pulled her from the trunk and kicked Geraldine in the face. It is likely that further beatings also occurred at this point too. Danielle's brother then grabbed some rope from the car and tied it tightly around Geraldine's legs as Danielle tied the other end of the rope to a cinder block. They then threw the cinder block into the river, picked up Geraldine by her arms and legs and swung her into the water. Geraldine was alive and conscious throughout this entire ordeal and due to the cinder block weighing her down and the tight bindings around her arms and legs, she sadly succumbed to the environment and drowned. It's speculated that the group stood and watched her struggle in the water, watching and laughing at her final moments. After murdering Geraldine in torturous cold blood, the group decided to go and try and purchase some more drugs. They ultimately ended up renting the car out, Geraldine's car, to a group of people for a few hours in exchange for substances. Though, at this point in the investigation, after questioning Danielle's wife, they still did not know where Danielle was, the man responsible for coordinating this gruesome murder. The police did locate, arrest, and charge Danielle's 13-year-old cousin and his 15-year-old brother in connection to this case. Danielle's wife was also charged due to her involvement. On the 31st of January in the year 2000, the police held a press conference where they revealed that they had managed to successfully locate and arrest Danielle Simpson. He was charged with capital murder. He had been found in a house known to the police for its drug activity. Interestingly, he was also on probation at the time for aggravated sexual assault. He had been arrested in 1998 and charged with sexual indecency with a child and was served a deferred adjudication with 10 years probation along with 600 hours of community service. It is also alleged that Daniel had molested his sister's nine-year-old daughter. The trial against Daniel Simpson began on the 29th of November in the year 2000. 
He faced the death penalty if found guilty by the courts and the jury. His wife had accepted a state plea deal to testify against him in the court, which saw her receive a 40-year prison sentence for her involvement with the possibility of parole after 30 years. And Danielle's younger brother also accepted a plea deal in exchange for life in prison to testify against his brother. It was determined that Danielle's wife and Danielle's brother were eligible to stand trial as an adult. On the 5th of December, the courts found Danielle Simpson guilty of capital murder. He then received the maximum sentence on the 8th of December, the death penalty. Danielle's 13-year-old cousin also pleaded guilty and received 14 years in a youth commission facility. Danielle appealed his death sentence numerous times, in one appeal claiming to have mental disabilities, but they were all denied by the court. The trial for his execution was set on the 18th of November in the year 2009, where, after a lethal injection, he was pronounced dead at 6.32pm. Danielle's execution was attended by members of his family, as well as members of Geraldine's family. In the lead-up to the lethal injection, he expressed his love to his family and his friends, though he never once acknowledged or showed remorse to the victim's family for what he had done. Danielle's 13-year-old cousin was paroled in 2007 at the age of 21. From 2007 to 2013, he was under adult parole supervision for the remainder of the sentence. Danielle's wife is eligible for parole in 2030. But what do you think of this case? The brutality and joyous ways that these individuals carried out the murder of Geraldine in cold blood shakes me to the core. The pure evil that it took to carry out such a senseless and completely unnecessary murder is undeniable. Danielle's lack of remorse in his final moments further goes to show that, and I do personally believe that in this case, the death penalty was completely justifiable. If you've watched my content before, you'll know that I only support the death penalties in horrific cases just like this one, where the perpetrator was undeniably guilty and riddled with evil. It's important to note that Daniel did try to argue in court that he hadn't actually taken part in the murder, but rather was just a lookout who remained in the car. But his violent history, the previous child molestation charge, and the further allegations and the testimonies from those who knew him weighed heavily against his claims. He had told the jury that his 16-year-old wife and 15-year-old brother had been the ones that had thrown Geraldine into the river. And while I believe that is entirely possible that they could have had the strength to do so, I do believe that it wouldn't be a likely scenario to have occurred. Danielle also served his time on death row in solitary confinement, leaving him nine years to think about what he did. And even after those nine years, he refused to acknowledge the family and showed no remorse. Just plain evil. I do also believe that his wife should have received a life sentence for her part in this case, just as Danielle's 15-year-old brother did, rather than the 40 years prison sentence with the possibility of parole after 30 years. It's undeniable that she had direct involvement, and I don't agree at all with the latter sentence. I have seen some sources discuss that as she was a survivor of domestic abuse, she had gone along with the kidnapping and murder out of fear of Danielle. 
I do have to refer to the testimony that went around happy and joyously showing off what they had done and with taking the domestic abuse that she has survived into account, I still am unable to agree with the 40 year sentence. I'm interested in knowing your thoughts on that so please do let me know down in the comments section below. It is also very important to note that not one of the individuals that had witnessed and been shown Geraldine in the back of her car in the parade of the kidnapping prior to her death were prosecuted at all. Some sources I read when researching this case did claim that a law in Texas was passed called Geraldine's Law, which made such a concealment of a crime illegal. Though, after searching through the Texas Constitution and statutes, I was unable to find anything relating to this Geraldine's Law. If any of you are from Texas, have you heard of this law? It's also unclear how exactly this law is alleged to operate. If anyone could provide an insight on that, I would greatly appreciate it. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. Subscribe to this channel if you want to see more true crime episodes just like the one in this video. And hit that bell icon so you could be notified every single time I post a brand new Curious Case episode. I post a new episode twice weekly, usually on Wednesdays and Sundays at 9pm p.m. UK time. Any scheduling changes I announce over on my social media, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter on the handles at it's Joshua Miles on both. If you have, as I said, any case suggestions, be sure you head over to requestthecase.com and submit the case there. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.